You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Exodus, the way out. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 15. We'll look at that whole chapter here this morning. Songs of the Redeemed is the title of this weekend's message. Also, grab your sermon notes. Have your sermon notes out. Follow along here. Look at the very top of those sermon notes. If you are forgiven, if that's true about you, if you are forgiven, reconciled to God, adopted as his child, lavished with his love, empowered by his Holy Spirit, and guaranteed a place in heaven all through the atoning work of Christ, if that's true about you, that's what I just, that's, that's the gospel. I mean... The gospel, the atoning work of Christ gives us these benefits and many more. If that's true about you, then you have a song to sing. You have a song to sing. And it's a song that no trial, no disease, no difficulty, no persecution, no power on earth or in hell can stop. Now, here's the critical question it's not, do you have a voice? Because I've heard some of you sing, okay? <laughs> just, that's, a, that's a bad joke, okay? <laughs> You've heard me sing too, haven't you? So the, the critical question is not do you have a voice, but do you have a song? Do you have a song? Now, chapter 15 of Exodus, this is the second recorded song in Scripture. Anybody know what the first recorded song is? You got it. Yeah, chapter 2 of Genesis, uh, Adam's song to Eve, when he talked about her being bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, a love song. And so that's the first. Here's the second. And so this is the second uh, recorded song in Scripture. Let me bring you up to speed here if you haven't been with us as we've been working our way through the uh, book of Exodus. The Israelites have been redeemed, set free by God from slavery to the Egyptians after 400 years. They're on their way to the promised land, but Pharaoh has had second thoughts about having set them free. And he comes after them, and they are trapped between the mighty Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. We read about that last week, chapter chapter 14, but as we saw, God miraculously parts the Red Sea, they cross on dry ground, but as the Egyptian army tries to follow, guess what? God causes the sea to return to its normal course, annihilating them, just taking them out. And and this is the song they sang on the shore of the Red Sea after God's miraculous salvation. So it kind of gives you a little bit of the context. It's really, really absolutely breathtaking when you, as, we, as we're going to read completely through this chapter. So this is the song they sang on the shore of the Red Sea after God miraculously uh, bought, brought his miraculous salvation. But what's also fascinating is that it tells us there in the 30th verse of chapter 14 that they're doing this as the dead bodies of these Egyptian soldiers are being washed up on the shoreline. Isn't that fascinating? as they're celebrating the victory that they have in God. This is also a song for all the people of God throughout redemptive history. Revelations 15, 2 through 3, you, you get the idea that this will be one of the many songs we'll sing in heaven. And so let me just say, uh, before we pray and uh, read our text, unpack our notes, that I, I benefited greatly from Bob Coughlin's uh, book, True Worshippers, 
It was a great resource for me. There's another book that he wrote that's really a great book on worship. It's Worship Matters. So Worship Matters and True Worshipers by Bob Coughlin. Really great resources on this topic of, of worship. But let me pray, and then we will uh, read our text and get through these notes. So would you bow your heads with me once again? So, Father, we are delighted to be here today. We come to you in the name of your Son and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Your majesty is unparalleled. Your beauty is unsurpassed. Your wisdom is unmeasured. Your goodness is, is unimaginable. Your steadfast love is unchanging and your greatness is unsearchable. We consider it the greatest end of our existence to find ourselves numbered among those singing the song of the redeemed. So we pray that through this study today, many more will say the same as you stir up our passion for you, as we see more clearly and experience your passion for us. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen. So uh, let me, let's walk through this and, and as we read this, I, I want you just to bask in the reality of God's word. As I, just, as I read, it'll take me two to three minutes to read through this uh, complete chapter. But here's what I want you to look for as we walk through this. Uh, this is a phenomenal chapter. The first 11, actually the first 21 verses really gives us, the, shows us, reveals to us the Lord who triumphs. And then in verses 22 through 26, we see the Lord who heals. And then in verse 27, we see the Lord who refreshes. But what you're going to see in, in this uh, text is this wonderful balance between between God's um, unsearchable greatness and, and his unimaginable goodness. See if you can identify that as we work through this. Uh, it's quite spectacular. And, and oftentimes, one of the reasons why we struggle in, in life is because we have such a low view of God, and nothing will chase the questions, doubts, and fears away like a clear sight of God's unsearchable greatness and unimaginable goodness, and that's what they're celebrating here. And actually, they're giving us a great model for true worship. True worship is a focus on God, on, on who He is and what He's done, and that's what you have in uh, this chapter. So let me begin reading chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Notice it's to the Lord. Oftentimes we can sing songs and we can sing them kind of to each other to celebrate God's goodness, but, but for the most part, that deep intimate worship is really about uh, singing to him, interacting with him, intimacy with God. Notice what it says here. It really speaks of his greatness first and foremost. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then he moves from there to his goodness because now he's going to personalize that. Notice what he says here. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And so he, now he's going to go back and forth between his, his greatness and his goodness. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Literally, this is Yahweh. It's the consonants, remember capital, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, it's Y-H-W-H, so it's his personal name, that's what he's talking about here, and then Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea, the floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone, 
They, they sunk like a rock is what he's saying. It's just, I love the descriptive language here. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries and you send out your fury. That's one aspect of God's nature, attribute, his fury, his anger. And I'm, I'm thankful for his anger. And... Uh, and it says, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods um, stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, and notice the enemy was kind of boasting, oh, we can take these people out. And this is oftentimes what happens to us. The enemy comes after us and, and taunts us and tries to intimidate us. And we get all these negative messages bombarding our minds and our thoughts. And you can't do that. And you're worthless. And you might as well give up. You might as well throw in the towel. And you get a little bit of this right here. That's what the enemy was doing to them. And they're, they're recognizing that. So the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full, its filth of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Oh, yeah? You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like, like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord? So it's kind of moved from he saves, and now he's going to talk about how he guides us, all part of the fact that the Lord the Lord who triumphs, and he says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love. We get back to his goodness. So we've been talking about his greatness throughout all of that. Now he gets back to his goodness. You have led in your steadfast love. Uh, covenant love there is what that word is. He's, he's committed to us. And so your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. There's that word redeemed, set free. Redemption. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And, and now he's going to talk about how he glorifies his name. And in fact, what he did, all of the other nations are going to take notice. So when we live our lives in such a way that we're putting on display uh, both the unsearchable greatness and the imaginable goodness of God, people take notice. This is what we see here. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All of the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. There's that word again, kind of that idea of redeemed. He purchased us. We owe our lives to him. He redeemed us. What was the cost? The cross. That's what you cost him. The cross, the son, his son for you and I. We celebrate that every weekend here, but particularly this next week, Passion Week. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
And then he talks about verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, let me just say something here real quick. Is that regardless of how things may look here in America or throughout the world, sometimes it seems a little bit out of control. They're not, okay? He's still in control. God knows, he cares, he rules. And ultimately, the only reason why you don't see maybe God's doing anything yet, it's only because God is, God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. So in his patience, he gives people opportunity to repent and turn towards him. So don't be, you know, don't be fooled that somehow God's not working. God is working. God is in control. And one of these days, he will balance the books, settle the score, make things right. This is what this is talking about here. He will bring judgment. And, um, and those, those that have not trusted the Savior... With the first coming, the first coming, he, he bore our judgment. The second coming, he will bring judgment. So it's, it gives us a little bit of a picture here. God rules, he reigns, he's in control. Verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, so she's kind of just inviting them, come on, let's celebrate the goodness of God. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, it kind of transitions here, and it moves from the Lord who triumphs to the Lord who heals Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So they've sung this song, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah means bitter, so I think we got that point, didn't we? It's bitter water. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. By the way, just think about this. They just celebrated the goodness of God. Now they face their first obstacle in the wilderness, and what are they doing? What are we doing, okay? That's, that's what we do. This is a picture of us. Thank you very much, okay? And so this is us. And we, we get through one battle only to complain about the next thing that we're facing. Oh, what am I going to do? Where are you, God? You've abandoned us. Uh, no, he hasn't. In fact, we're going to talk more about it here in a couple of weeks uh, about this idea of the desert wanderings and the struggle and the, how adversities develop us. But, but anyway, I mean, it's just interesting. See what Moses did, and he cried to the Lord. That's verse 25. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became uh, sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Notice that. That's an interesting, uh, he's testing them. Oh, yeah, you're all happy when things go your way? <laughs> How about when they don't go your way? This is a test, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord. So he's just saying, hey, here's the test. This is how you can pass the test. If you will diligently if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, have interaction with him, intimacy with him, the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your God. 
So we've gone from the Lord who triumphs to the Lord who heals to now the last verse, the Lord who refreshes. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. This is like a little oasis. And they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Really good stuff. And so let's, uh, let's talk about this. Grab your notes there. And a uh, couple questions we're looking at. Why do we sing? And then what does singing do? What does singing do? So why do we sing? That's what they're doing here. The first set of verses, first 21 verses of this text. Why do we sing? Here's the first answer. Because God tells us to sing. That's why we sing. That's a good reason. I'll take that. He told me to sing, so I'm going to sing. Actually, there are more than 400 verses in Scripture that reference singing. Did you catch that? 400. That's a lot. And there are almost 50 direct exhortations to sing. So 50 times there's a direct ex- exhortation to sing. Let me give you one of those. Psalm 47, 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Guess what we're supposed to do? Sing praises. There you go. I think it's pretty clear here. Pretty clear. Now, singing is not an option for the Christian. No one is excused. And in, in all of my studies, I, I, one thing that I noticed is that vocal skill is not a requirement. Uh, it, there's no requirement. I, I've never, in any of the verses I, I've talked, I've, I've studied about all of these many verses that talk about the reference singing or these direct exhortations to sing, none of them say, oh, by the way, you can only sing if you have really a good voice. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that at all. In fact, uh, Psalm 101, many of you are familiar with this, make what kind of a noise? Joyful. joyful noise to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, doesn't it seem a little strange to you that the Bible commands us to not steal, not lie, oh, do not commit adultery, oh, and sing praises to God? Does that seem a little strange to you? We've got all these commandments, and then all of a sudden, oh, sing praises to God. Maybe not to you, but to me. I was thinking about this. I go, oh, that seems a little weird. Why would, you, why would he, why is this commandment in there? Why is he telling us that we must sing? And it's almost kind of in that same category as you would see kind of the Ten Commandments. And maybe not, not so much, but it is throughout Scripture, and it's really important. And, um, and so why is that? God commands, uh, his commandments are not arbitrary rules, but they're meant to protect us from the worst and to provide the very best for us. So anytime you see a commandment, anytime he's telling us, he's exhorting us, he's saying, I want you to do this. This is how I want you to live. It's because it's for our best interest. He has our best interest at heart. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Christian philosopher, struggled with this a bit. And in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, this is what, uh, what he said. As Lewis was, was beginning to believe in God... And by the way, he converted from agnosticism, atheism, agnosticism, and then to Christianity. So as he's beginning to believe in God, there was a major stumbling block for him was this massive number of demands by God in the Psalms that we are to praise him. And he thought of it as a vain woman wanting compliments. Isn't that interesting? But listen to what he said. This was his discovery. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I mean, I wasn't thinking deep enough about this whole idea of of praise. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. 
Like, like I had to somehow, God was desperate to get my honor. Like he needed me to, to praise him is the idea that he's talking about here. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, motors, cars, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere. Listen to what he says here. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so, I mean, we all do that, don't we? You see a beautiful sunset, and you go, whoa, check this out. You're taking pictures of it. You're putting it on Facebook or Instagram, and all your friends are going, whoa, that's really cool. That's what he's saying here. So we spontaneously, you know, so... I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment and not just expresses the enjoyment, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So why does God want us to praise him? Because intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. Oh my goodness, that's why. I mean, he's inviting us to this level of intimacy, and it's the only thing that will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. There's nothing in creation that will satisfy you like the creator. And so when he invites us to praise him, he's inviting us into this level of intimacy that will take you to the skies. It's just out of this world. That's what he's inviting us to. In fact, his beauty, he is the beauty. He is the beauty be behind every beauty on this planet Earth. He is the glory behind every every glory on this planet earth. Every created beauty was created by God to lead our affections to him. And, and no created thing can give you the deep, durable satisfaction that only he can give you. I could talk a long time on that, but I'm not. I gotta get to the next point here, number two. All three persons of the Trinity are connected to song. So why do we sing? Why do we sing? Because he told us to sing. He tells us to sing. But also, all three persons of the Trinity are connected to song. You got the Father, Zephaniah 3.17 says, Zephaniah 3.17 says this, the Father will exalt over his people with loud singing. <laughs> I love that. The Father singing over me? Yes. Yes. I think that part of that singing comes in the form of, of those words ringing in our soul, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Remember the words that were spoken over Jesus? Those are words for us because of what Jesus did for us. And so the Father sings, with, sings over us loudly, it says here. The Son, Jesus sings with his disciples after the Last Supper, Matthew 26, 30, and most likely sing weekly at the synagogue, Luke 4, 16. But also... It's associated with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is tied to our singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
So uh, the spirit-filled life, listen to me, the spirit-filled life is connected to having a melody in your heart, having a song. I can always tell when my wife is having really a good day because she sings. She goes, she goes through the day going, even when I'm trying to talk to her. It's almost like, you can't get me down. I don't care what you do today. You're not going to bother me. Even if you are a pain. That's not what she's singing, but I kind of get that idea. It's like, she's, there's nothing going to get her down. And I, I can't help but think that that's just, man, she's just living in the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit-filled life. Okay, so what does singing do? I've already kind of alluded to it a little bit, but number one, it helps us to express our emotions, but also to speak to them. So verse one of our text, then Moses and the, and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Intimacy with God stirs up such deep emotion that mere talking is not enough. Music gives opportunity to express and even deepen those emotions. And we know this throughout history in every culture, music is the language of the heart. You travel all over the planet and you're gonna see groups of people, getting, they use music to express their heart now, we want to avoid emotionalism, but not emotions. There's a difference between emotionalism and uh, expressing emotions to God. Emotionalism pursues feeling as an end in themselves without regard to how that feeling is produced, without regard to the means. I've been in settings. You can go to churches here in the valley that they use a lot of emotionalism. I've been to... Uh, concerts before, and it was almost like a lesson in the first group that was up was all about emotionalism, and the next group that was up was more about stirring your emotions with the deep thoughts about God. And there was a major difference in how the crowd responded. The one was kind of yelling at the crowd, come on, you guys can do better than that, and everybody, come on up here, everybody come to the front. It was kind of weird. It was almost like they were really trying to work the crowd. And... Uh, and some people kind of like those environments. I particularly don't like those environments because I consider it kind of emotionalism. Tell me something that'll get me excited and I'll get excited. And that's really the difference between the two. Emotionalism pursues feeling as an end in themselves. Uh, be aware of that when you come to church. You come in here and go, well, I just didn't feel it. Well, it's not about whether you feel it or not. Did you think deep thoughts about God? Are you, are you reflecting on him? Are you studying his word, whether your feelings are moved or not? It, and so don't focus on that. The, the end is not your feelings, nor whatever means. That's emotionalism. Emotionalism pursues feeling as an end in themselves without regard to how that feeling is produced. The emotions that singing is meant to express are a response to who God is and what he has done. So the foundation of faith is really thinking. Thinking is really the foundation of faith of faith. We have to think out the implications of our faith. If I'm, if I'm freaking out, it's because I'm not thinking out the implications of my faith about who God is and what he's done for me. Believe me, in time, that will move your emotions. That will stir you. And so the emotions that, that singing is meant to express our response to who God is and what he's done. Singing combines truth about God with passion for God, doctrine and devotion, worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 23 and 24. So passionless singing or worship isn't really an oxymoron. Listen to what New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes. He says, worship of God should always involve the emotions. 
How can we praise a holy God who has redeemed us without getting emotional about it? And then he goes on to say that, that what should move our emotions, and I paraphrase this, is not the music, but the mind's apprehension of truth about God in the lyrics. That's why I love the songs that we sing here. And uh, these guys are very intentional. Our worship guys are really intentional about picking songs that have some deep theology in them for us to think deeply about God. And... Um, I mean, it's, it's really important. Now, what's also interesting about this is that the heart, the heart feelings that music expresses aren't always happy ones either. I've actually gone to conferences where they would actually teach you, oh, you should only have happy songs on Sunday morning. In fact, you should have happy songs all the time. Well, wait a minute. When I read the Psalms, there are times that there's not, they're not very happy, okay? There are songs of, of sadness. In fact, there are songs of confession and repentance, Psalm 32 and 51. And there's songs of despair and turmoil, verse 42. And then there's, there's songs of, of darkness, Psalm 88. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 88. It, it ends like this. Darkness is my closest friend. Imagine singing that song on a Sunday morning. We end the service, darkness is my closest friend. Okay, you guys are dismissed. Oh, my goodness. What kind of a service was that? Well, that's reality. That's the end of that psalm. It never works out any kind of resolution. Sometimes that happens. When I spend time with God, I don't always work out and get resolved what's going on in my heart. I have to leave that because I have other things I've got to do. And I'm praying to God, God, help me with this. But right now, I just feel like darkness is all over me. And that's why it's in the book of Psalms. I mean, how about, I, I wrote down some of these. How about this one? Bathe my feet in the blood of my enemies. Yeah, when are we going to sing that one? That's my favorite song. Praise God. How about this one? Break the teeth in their mouths. Psalm 58. Here's another good, good one. Blessed shall, shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them on the rock. That's Psalm 137. We're going to sing that one in a couple weeks. Still working on the melody line on that one. I mean, fortunately, we live this side of the cross, and we've got tons of mercy and grace. And so, but I mean, there are times there are songs that are appropriate for like, man, I'm down in the dumps, and this is really hard, and this is difficult. Where are you, God? Help us to get through this. And so, just keep that in mind. The hard feelings that music expresses aren't always happy ones. And you've got to be okay with that. You've got to work through that. Uh, I, that's why I read Psalms, uh, five psalms every day. And I, I love that because it pushes me and helps me to work through those. God gave us singing as a means not only of expressing our emotions, but also of speaking to them. And I shared with this, uh, this with you a few weeks ago that some of you got to quit listening to yourself. You wake up and you listen to yourself all day, and by the end of the day, you're down in the dumps. And you've got to start speaking to yourself. And you've got you've to sing to yourself. And you've got to listen to music. I didn't bring my uh, iPhone up here but uh, I've got music on there, and uh, man, I, I'll hit the iTunes from time to time, I'll listen to that music, and oh my goodness, it will help to speak to my heart when my heart is down, when I'm struggling with things, when I'm doubting and have fear and anxiety, and it's overwhelming me. Uh, so, so God gave us singing as a means not only of expressing our emotions, but also of speaking to them. As David skillfully played his lyre, Saul's troubled spirit was calmed. I don't know if this is on your notes. Write it down, 1 Samuel 16, 23. 1 Samuel 16, 23. That's where, remember Saul? He was overwhelmed. He had demons coming after him. By the way, 
There are times that there are demons coming after you and me, and there's something that will lift and chase those demons away, and it's, it's song. It's, it's worship. And so he gets David in there, and David is singing, and there go the demons. I've seen that happen on a weekend service. I've come in here really down and depressed, and they hit the first chord on, those, on that song, and I begin to look at the lyrics up there, and it just begins to elevate me, and whatever demons are chasing me, they're gone. I mean, they're, they're out of here and out of, out of my life, and so that's, that's important to do. Job describes the music of the pipe as bringing joy in Job 21.12. Later, he speaks of it as reflecting mourning in Job 30.31. When we sing biblically sound, gospel-centered lyrics, our experience of God's love is deepened and it chases the fears away. 1 John 4, 18, it says that his perfect love chases away the fears. So if you're, if you're overwhelmed by a lot of fear and anxiety and worry, you need to be made perfect in his love. It's his perfect love. You need to know his perfect love. You need to experience his love. It's not enough to know that God loves you. You must experience his love in your heart. And anytime I have excessive anxiety, bitterness, despair, those are all signs that I'm needing to linger in his love a little longer. And so I'll use music, I use scripture, I meditate, I reflect, I cry, I cry out to God, I cling to him. I pour my heart to him. That's the first one. Number two, it helps us to personalize and remember deep truths about God and his work. So it helps us to personalize and remember deep truths about God and his work. That's what they're doing in this text, Exodus 15. Notice the deep truths about God. I wrote them out there on your notes. Deep truths about God and his work. God's covenant, verse 2. God's character, verses 3, 11, and 13. God's name, verse 4. God's work, verses 6 through 7. Verse 12, verse 16. God's purpose, verses 17 through 19. And then also notice personalize. We've got to personalize. It's one thing to know God and his greatness and all that he is and does, but then I've got to learn how to personalize that. How do you take those truths about God, who he is and what he's done for you, and then begin to apply them specific to where your heart is most restless? Do you know how to do that? You've got to learn how to do that. It's like I'm anxious. Okay, how does God's word speak to me? God, how do you want to meet me right here in my anxiety as I, as I navigate life and as I work through these things? That's what you see here. Look at verse 2. has seven personal pronouns. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. I, I, those three right there, strength, song, salvation. If you just took that, meditated on it, God, speak to me. What does that mean? What does that mean that he's my strength? What does that mean? He's my song. Sounds like satisfaction to me. Sounds like it puts a melody in my heart. No matter how hard life gets, he's my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. As you've heard me say many times before, the deeper the theology the higher the doxology. Theology is the study of God. So the deeper the theology, the higher the doxology. Doxology is worship. It's finding our deepest satisfaction in him. It's expressing our love to him, experiencing his love for us. So the deeper the theology, the higher the doxology, and the healthier the psychology. Healthy biblical worship will find a balance between God's unsearchable greatness and his unimaginable goodness producing. This is how you know you're balanced 
He will produce all in intimacy with him and all in intimacy with him. So, so his greatness should create within you a wow, oh, oh my goodness. And then his goodness should create within you a intimacy. Mm, oh my goodness, I've never been more satisfied. What's interesting, and if you listen carefully, uh, we try to do our best. We're not, we're not perfect at it by far, but uh, we try to balance that between the two. And it's interesting. You can actually see churches will emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. It's all about God's goodness. It's all about God's goodness, and they kind of minus God's greatness. And then there'll be churches that emphasize God's greatness minus God's goodness. You really need to have a balance uh, between the two because it's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. If you're not comforted by his goodness, it's because you don't know his greatness. And uh, that builds confidence in you. If you don't have confidence, it's because you don't have the combination of, wow, this God that spoke everything into existence loves you, adores you, is with you, never to leave you or forsake you. So it's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. That should chase the fears away if you really understand what that means. And it's his goodness that makes his greatness so convicting. It's humbling. Oh, my goodness. He's so good to me, and yet... He's the creator. He could wipe me out in a heartbeat, but he's chosen not to, and his son died on the cross for me. And, I, and, and I'm reconciled to him. Oh, my goodness, that humbles me. So that, that should create within us a humble confidence. That should eliminate pride and also fear. Singing helps us to remember God's word. Man, I'm telling you, when the enemy comes after you, he's going to come after you with lies. And the only defense that you have is the word of God, the truth of God's word. So you've got to store up God's word deep in your heart. Listen to what it says. I gave you a ton of verses here, Colossians 3, 12 through 16. Let me just read verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So do you have a lot of God's word as an arsenal built up in your heart? When he comes after you with those lies, when he comes after you and says, ah, you can't get through this. You're worthless. Look what you've done. You've made a mess of this. He tries to throw a lot of guilt and shame on you. Do you know how to come back at him with the word of God? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. How do we do that? How do we let God's word dwell in us richly? He says right here, by teaching, this is what's happening right here, and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's what we're doing. And then also singing songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it's what we do on weekend services. So we worship in song and in the study of God's word in scripture. By the way, our song time is not the preliminaries leading up to the, the main event, okay? You guys know that, don't you? This is not the main event. All of what we do is the main event. Every bit of what we do is, is, is really important. And uh, in fact, it's interesting. There's a quote uh, from, let me see, a quote from True Worshippers, the book I talked about earlier. Listen to this quote. Dr. Oliver Sacks has studied the effect of worship or music on the brain for years. So the effect of music on the brain for years. In his book, Musicophilia, he writes, every culture has songs and rhymes to help children learn the alphabet, numbers, and other lists. Even as adults, we're limited in our ability to memorize series or to hold them in mind unless we use mnemonic devices or patterns, and the most powerful of these devices are rhyme, meter, and song. I mean, my wife and I, we, we taught our kids, I mean, you guys did too, I'm sure, taught our kids the alphabet through song. We taught our, our kids their phone number 
they ever got lost. Uh, we taught all of them except for one, the phone number. We didn't want them to know the phone number. <laughs> I'm kidding. That was, that was a bad joke. We taught them all that, the phone number so that we could get them back if something happened and uh, even the address by song. But, uh, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. That's how we learn. It's why advertisers use slogans to music for memorable commercials. Let me, let me test you on this. Complete these slogan songs for me, okay? See, see if you guys know some of these. Nationwide is... Oh, gee. They got you. It's like an earworm, huh? You guys knew that one. How about this one? Like a good neighbor. Okay, here's some older ones. Here's some older ones. Plop, plop. What, what is that one? Alka-Seltzer. It takes a licking. That's, that's what? Timex, okay. How about this? This is a real, real old one. This will date you. The thrill of victory. ABC, Wide World of Sports. Okay, what's, what, what is the breakfast of champions? Okay, that's crazy. Uh, how about this one? I, someone reminded me of this one. You don't have to be lonely. Farmers only, doctor. I didn't sing it right, did I? The melody line was a little bit off. It's, I think it stumped this uh, group over here. Okay, how about this one? Uh, that, that, by the way, that commercial drives me crazy, okay? It's like, what in the world? I wake up in the middle of the night with that in my head going, like, Lord, help me. How about this one? Uh, this is a beverage. Tastes great? Oh, you guys are a little hesitant on that one. Miller Lite beer. How about this one? Winston tastes good. Like a cigarette should. Winston cigarettes. Some of you uh, liked that one even a little bit better. What about, what about this one? What happens here stays here? Vegas. Vegas. So beer, cigarettes, and Vegas. Some of you were on those three. A little bit too good. So we're going to have a special prayer meeting right at the end of the service for you. So you got that going in your head. Why do they do that? Because it stays in our head. That's why we need to fill our lives with God's word. Here's number three. It is part of our body language of more fully expressing our love to God. So we sing because it's part of what we do as we express our love more fully to God. Look at verses 20 through 21. Then Marion, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Marion sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know, it's interesting, as you study through Scripture, uh, Psalm 108, 1 and 2, it says, I will praise him with my whole being. I will praise him with my whole being. So I made a list of our whole being. This is just a short list. There are so many other verses on each of these, but clapping, clapping, Psalm 47, 1, dancing, Psalm 30, 11, lifting our hands, Psalm 28, 2, lifting head, Psalm 3, 3, kneeling, Psalm 95, 6, standing, Psalm 122, 2, hearing, Psalm 49, 1, bringing offerings, Psalm 66, 13. Now, now let me give you a couple of illustrations here to kind of help you to apply this. When my bride and I go out to eat on a date, Every time we go out to eat is a date, okay? And uh, because, you know, we've been empty nesters for over a decade now, and so every time we go out to eat is kind of a date night. And so I, I don't sit across from her, nor does she sit across from me like a zombie, okay? 
bored, looking at her phone, rolling her eyes like, oh, how much longer, God, do I have to be with this guy? <laughs> she doesn't do that. I mean, if you were to go into, we went to Columbus here the other day. We were hanging out over there just for a little bit, eating a couple tacos. And, and if you were to walk in, you see us sitting there, and we're like totally uh, kind of disenchanted, disconnected from one another. Oh, what would you think? She's rolling her eyes. She's into her phone. You think, man, what's going on with Pastor Ray and his wife? What's happening? He must have offended her. That's what he, that's what's going on. That's right. Actually, if you were to see us, we put our phones away. We don't even mess with them when we're at a restaurant. And I, I gaze at her. I touch her. I smile at her. She smiles at me. I hug her. I interact with her. In fact, I even reach across the table when we get ready to eat, and I, I pray. We, we spend a time praying and interacting. And as I'm interacting with her, she tries to make out with me, and I... <laughs> How come you guys laugh so hard? I have to fight her off because I'm trying to eat my taco. I'm going to say, not now, not now. That's kind of gross, isn't it? An older couple making out with each other at Carumba's. Nonetheless, a young couple doing that, that would be gross too. Hey, could you guys not make out? I'm trying to eat my taco here. Oh, my goodness. No, listen, I magnify her worth through my body language, through my physical expressiveness. Now, what if... What if, uh, what if she were to, to ask me, she were to say, after 40 years of marriage, why are you so passionately interested in me? And I were to respond to her by saying, well, it's my duty as your husband. I have to. How would, how would that fly? Would I score points? But, hey, God's word told me I'm, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, how about this one? How about if I said, it's my pleasure as your husband I want to. Would that be better? Okay, I'm going to have to remember that one. Okay. <laughs> I got to remember that one. Now, listen, why did you come here today? Why are you here? Well, I have to. I was brought here, my friends, my family, and I got to show up here, and I just went, whoa, 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 whoa. You had to? No, 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 you want to. Believe me, you want to. If you understood who Christ is and what he's done for you, oh, my goodness. You want to. God, I want to. I love you. I want to obey you. See, his commandments, when he says sing, yes, yes, of course, my whole body, my whole life, I'm going to express my love to him. That's, that would just be normal. Most, uh, I've, I've seen this happen I've seen Christians go to sporting events and concerts and yell and sing their hearts out and then come to church on a Sunday morning and they're as stiff as an ironing board. I mean, I've seen it in here. I've seen people like this. Oh, God, I praise you. Okay, don't get too excited there. It's just crazy. And I, you know, I've also uh, seen Christians go and watch two to three hour movies and binge on Netflix and have a hard time staying focused for an hour or an hour and a half at a church service or, or even a daily 30 minute time of prayer and Bible study. Why is that? Why would that be true? It really reveals our heart. It reveals our values, what's most important. Where you find your greatest pleasure reveals what you most treasure. What is it that you most treasure? It's gonna be revealed in how you live out your life. Your behavior betrays you, okay? That's just all there is to it. And what's going on in your heart when you do what you do? What motivates that? The Christian life is really about 
the denial of a lesser pleasure in something created to have much greater pleasure in the creator, which makes the fight of faith in the Christian life a fight for pleasure, a fight for delight. Here's, here's crazy. I mean, here's what's crazy. I've, I, I love... I've loved going to some of the games. I've gone to Diamondback games and Suns games. Not for a long time. Suns have been horrible for, for a couple of decades. But uh, sorry, Suns fans out there. But, uh, but then I've gone to uh, also over to the big stadium over here with the Cardinals. Hope they do better this year. But uh, and, and I'm hanging out with people, most of which I don't even know. And they're excited. They're excited. They're drawing us right into this. Oh, woo! You know, when our team does really good and they're high-fiving, we're high-fiving each other and they're slapping us on the back and, ooh, chest bump and just don't pat me on the butt, please. And, uh, <laughs> and they're getting all crazy at a crazy game. And then I've also sat around, and you've got to watch Nancy around Seattle Seahawks fans because she gets into fistfights. <laughs> she is mean. But what's interesting about is that is that how we can get so excited about something that's as dumb as a football going up and down a field, kicking through, you know, and yet we can come to church oftentimes and just be dull. And, and here's, here's the point that I'm trying to make. Whatever level of excitement you have at a sporting event, concert, or movie should pale in comparison to your excitement when you are at church singing and praising God. Don't you think? Wouldn't that be true? I'm, Otherwise, otherwise, you might not know much about God. It's just evidence that you either don't know much about God or you don't really care. We were talking about that in, uh, in staff, and this is what, because there are some people that know a little bit more about sports, and so they'll celebrate that sport. They'll go, oh, wow, did you see that play? And I go, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I don't know as much about baseball, but there's a lot more going on in baseball than what meets the eye. And so I've had baseball uh, people say, oh my goodness, do you see what they're doing here? And no, I don't see that. I'm not celebrating with you because I don't have a clue about what you're talking about. I'm just watching the grass grow right now. And, uh, <laughs> because that's what it feels like. <laughs> but they're more knowledgeable in the game. And they know more about it. So they're getting excited about things that I don't see, but that could be true about others when they're not very excited because they just don't see the things that you're seeing. Or maybe they just don't care. And that could be the case, too. Here's number four. We've got to continue to roll here. It helps us to express our unity as the church and encourages others. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then verse 21, once again, and Marion sang to them, sing to the Lord for his triumph glory. So she's inviting them to sing with her. Nothing like the experience of being with a bunch of fired up Christians singing praises to God. There is a dynamic of God's presence. There is a slice of heaven on earth that you can experience in corporate worship that you will never experience on your own. Did you know that? And there are times in here that I've experienced that on a weekend service. See, I get three shots at it. So I've, I've had three times where I've come in here on a Saturday night and then uh, on the two Sunday mornings, and oh my goodness, just lifted to the rafters because of the music, because of what's going on in here. A sense of God's presence. Psalm 34, 5 says that those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces shall never be covered with shame. So when you sing to the Lord, would someone describe your countenance as radiant? Or would they describe it as something else? See, when, when our praise is as glorious as the one we praise, it will attract even those whose hearts are hardened toward God. Psalm uh, 66, verse 1, it actually says, Give to him glorious praise. 
Give to him praise that's equal to his glory, is what it's saying. I love uh, Psalm 96. Uh, Darren was telling me about this, this particular psalm, and I looked it up, and it certainly it does. It's, it, our praise is very evangelistic. So here's, here's my question for you. Is your excitement for God contagious? See, the more you live in vital union and communion with him, the more your excitement for him will be contagious. Listen to me. If you're bored with God, it's not God. It's you. You're boring. Okay, sorry. Yeah, you're, you're boring because God is not is not boring. He is not boring in the least bit. There is nothing boring about God because there is always more of him to know, more of him to experience, and more of him to enjoy. Number five, it heals our hearts and refreshes our souls. We see that at the the end of this chapter, verses 22 through 26, he heals our hearts, and then verse 27, he refreshes our souls. Verse 22 and 26, the people went from rejoicing to complaining. And it's easy to sing when circumstances are comfortable, but it takes faith to sing when, when you are suffering. And he can change our circumstances, but he would rather change us in our circumstances. I love the, uh, Acts 16. This is a great example here of Paul and Silas have been savagely beaten and imprisoned for rescuing a girl from a dishonorable and oppressive occupation. How do they endure such mistreatment? Songs in the night. That's how they do it, songs in the night. Even in the dark times, you've got to keep singing even when you don't feel like it. You don't let your feelings rule your life. Your feelings are not the initiators of your life. They're responders. Always remember that. They're the responders. It's your thoughts, it's your faith that initiates. That's where you go. You let the facts of who Jesus is lead the way. Your feelings will follow eventually. But you don't let your feelings lead the way, and that's what they're doing here. Listen to what it says in Acts 16, 25, and 26. About midnight, darkest time of the day, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, I don't have time. I've run out of time here this morning. But there's an article from Time Magazine. It's part of their online uh, Time Magazine, and it talks about the title of the article is Singing Changes Your Brain by Stacy Horn. And this is basically what it says. is August 16, 2013. You can go online and read it. But group singing has been scientifically proven to lower stress, relieve anxiety, and elevate endorphins. And in the article, it talks about uh, all of that and how... Uh, so it shouldn't be surprising that group singing is on the rise in America and people getting together and singing. It's why people like going to concerts. It talks about how, how exhilarating it can be. I'm almost tempted to read it, but I'm not. Okay, I'm going to pass it. There it is. I'm going to go to the next point. The last point is it welcomes the, the Spirit's work into our lives. It welcomes the Spirit's work into our lives. Psalm 22.3, God inhabits the praises of his people. He dwells in the praises of his people. Uh, Psalm 104, you guys are familiar with this. Enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Yeah, you want to 
experience his presence, life's most satisfying reality. You enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. And I'm learning that. I'm learning to revel in who Jesus is and what he has done for me until my heart is awakened with unspeakable and glorious joy. And I want to teach you to do the same. Amy Augustine, our uh, hospitality, hospitality director, along with many other things she does, shared with me a quote from Desiring God this last week. Let me read this to you. It's a quote from John Piper. It says, Singing to God isn't just a nice little emotional trip to spice up our worship service. It's an attack against sin and Satan. January the 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other young missionaries approached the jungle edge where the Aka Indians lived. Their last recorded act, according to Elizabeth Elliott, was to sing a hymn together. Listen to just a part of that hymn. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing we rest on thee, in thy name we go. All five of them were killed that afternoon, but they were protected by God, protected from a fate far worse than death. They were protected from cowardice and unbelief and fear, and it would be fair to say protected with song. And, of course, if you know the rest of the story, and God later used their courageous sacrifice of love to bring many in that tribe to faith in Christ. It's a phenomenal story. We have two great weapons, as the article goes on, in worship, the Word of God and song. So let us give heed to the Word of God and let us sing with all of our heart. And that's what we're going to do in just a minute. I'm going to pray, and our band's going to come up and lead us in a song, and we're going to blow the ceiling off. Okay, you guys ready? Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Father God, help us. Help us to overcome our pride and to get better at expressing our emotions and speaking to them through worship and song, to personalize and remember deep truths about you and your work in our lives. May we praise you with our whole being, with praise that is as glorious as you, the one we praise. Heal our hearts. Refresh our souls as we welcome your Holy Spirit's work in our lives through song for your glory and our joy in your son's beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So being Palm Sunday, remember Jesus rode in on a donkey as as it started the whole Passion Week and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We thought it'd be appropriate to sing this song, Lion and the Lamb. Sing it with all of your heart. Would you stand with us as we conclude our time together?